Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of the memoir, What a Body Remembers by Karen Stefano. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It has been earning rave reviews. Samantha Dunn, author of Not By Accident, calls it, quote, riveting, necessary, and unforgettable. Susan Henderson, author of The Flicker of Old Dreams, calls it a gripping, upending thing of beauty. And Antonia Crane, author of the memoir Spent, calls it stunning. What a Body Remembers, a memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, available from Rare Bird Books. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listing. Just one person at just What's one up, time. everybody? Hello. Right. How's right. it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm your host. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have Catherine Scanlon on the program today. She has a new book out called Aug Nine Fog. It is available from MCD Books. That's an imprint of uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And uh, this is a difficult book to categorize, Ognine Fog. It, it, I guess it reads like a poem, but it is a work of collage that is drawn from a diary that Catherine found at uh, an estate sale in the Midwest. You're going to hear all about it. So the book, again, is called August Nine Fog. My conversation with Catherine Scanlon is coming up in just a bit. Uh, I think today... Let me see the calendar. I think the t-shirt uh, fundraiser, yeah, it's over with. This episode airs on the 12th of June, and the uh, fundraiser ended yesterday, if you're listening right on time. So I just want to say thank you, a big thank you to everybody who uh, bought a t-shirt or otherwise supported the fundraiser to get every single episode of this podcast transcribed. I've been at this for the past month. I've made it a kind of project. There have been people who have uh, volunteered. Dozens of you have been kind enough to reach out to me via email to offer to transcribe an episode or more. And uh, I want to say, uh, uh, you know, another thank you 
to those people as well. So what else has been going on? I went to see Dead and Company at the Hollywood Bowl last week. I don't go out that much. You know, I don't go to concerts the way that I used to. So, you know, when I do go, it feels like an event, you know, and uh, it's kind of a nostalgia trip. As many of you know, I'm a fan of the uh, Grateful Dead. I don't care what anyone thinks. I know people think it's lame. I like the Grateful Dead. I don't give a shit. And uh, so the Dead and Company is like, you know, three of the living remaining members of the original band plus like John Mayer and some like younger people. And uh, so I go to the show and uh, I'm I'm sitting, I had great seats. I was sitting right in front of Bill Walton, the basketball player. He was literally seated directly behind us. I'm like telling people that he's been going to shows for 52 years. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you guys know that, but he's like a devoted deadhead. He was at the shows in Egypt when they played at the pyramids back in like 1978. So there I was down in the pit at the Hollywood bowl, about 10 rows back dead center, got to see the band play. It was good. They're a little slow as you can imagine. They're in their seventies, but they're still doing it. It's good to go see people play music, whatever it is, you know, just to be in like in a crowd with some energy. And uh, a funny thing happened after the show. So, uh, you know, I ride my bike all over LA and I'm kind of devoted to getting around on two wheels when I can. And I rode my bike up to the Hollywood bowl just cause the traffic is so insane. It's like rush hour and you're trying to get to this concert venue that's right near the freeway. And you know, if you don't know LA, it's just, it's absolute, it's an absolute clusterfuck right up there by the Hollywood bowl. So I was just like, you know what? I know I'm going to have to ride uphill on the way there, but I can, I can kind of bomb downhill on the way home. I'm just going to do it. And it worked out great. The only thing that was a little weird is that, you know, after the concert, I was a little bit stoned. I was a little bit, you know, sideways, not, not like nothing record breaking, but I'd been at a concert. I was at a dead show. So I'm riding out of the uh, venue, kind of weaving my way through these crowds, thousands of people kind of pouring out in various states of disrepair, trying to find their cars. (laughs) And uh, I'm, you know, making my way downhill back down towards uh, Hollywood. And I get to this intersection and all of a sudden I hear this guy at the corner say, no way. (laughs) It's Brad Listy. I love your podcast, man. I look forward to the episode on Wednesday. And uh, I turned and I I think I can remember what the guy looked like. He was kind of a hippie-ish. I think he had longer hair, glasses, and he was with a a young lady. But it was just so random. And it was, uh, I was in a state of mind where it, it seemed like especially cosmic, I think, you know, I was like, whoa, what was that all about? But it was uh, it was enjoyable. It was an enjoyable moment. It made me feel good, and it was it was funny, at least to me. So you know, the podcast it makes its way out there. People, you know, they know about it somehow. And even more interesting was the fact that this guy recognized me. So I'm like, wait, are you like googling me? Like, what's going on? Because I don't uh, really present my face, obviously, uh, on the show. 
And on the internet, I mean, I guess you, you know, you can find it if you look me up, but he knew exactly what I look like, which I guess is fine. Like, like, listen, I Google people all the time. And if somebody's like, oh, you know, this is where I live. Can you, can you send me a whatever? Sometimes I'll Google their address, not because I'm being creepy, but just because I'm like, well, where do this, where does this person live? What's their physical space? And I want to check it out. And I think a lot of us do that. I, I hope a lot of us do that. I hope I'm not like some kind of crazy outlier for doing that. It's kind of irresistible, right? When you have Google maps or. So anyway, uh, all is well. My thanks again to everybody who bought a t-shirt. Those should be going out in the mail shortly. And for those of you who wanted one, but you didn't get to the line fast enough, maybe next time. And if you are still, if you're listening and all of this is new to you and you have an interest in helping to transcribe some episodes, the email address is letters at other and just put transcription in the subject line. So I know what you're uh, mailing about. Okay. So let's get to the program. My guest is Catherine Scanlon. Her new book is called Aug Nine Fog, available now from MCD Books. Here she is, folks. This is Catherine Scanlon. Well, I, um, I found the diary in 2004. I was living with my parents at the time um, in Iowa, and... I had just, I had finished undergrad and I had done this summer program in um, New Mexico and I was going to be moving to Chicago to, and I was going to apply to grad school there. But in the meantime, like after I came back from New Mexico, I, I stayed with my parents for probably three or four months and they're antique dealers. And so I just spent those months going to auctions and estate sales with them, um, which is something that. I've liked to do for a long time. And I write in the introduction to the book that that I picked the diary out of out of a box that was on its way to the trash, which probably was how it happened, but honestly, I can't quite remember exactly how I found it. It was either that or it might have been something where my my dad brought home a box of things that were gonna get thrown out. Um he sometimes helped these auctioneers that he knew and like when he helped them they would give him things or they would like if there were things that they were going to throw out he would just take them because he doesn't like to see things thrown out as an antiquer i guess that would is that the right terminology antiquer uh, yeah or a, a dealer yeah a, antique dealer yeah <laughs> yeah no dealer there's the drug connotation antiquer yeah. kind of a weird yeah, I word i kind of like the dealer a little bit better but um but yeah, so anyway, it was it was something that was basically someone had kept it or multiple people had kept it safe for quite a few years and then the impression that I had or that I remember from from when I got it was that there was kind of no one left to care about it. Um and you see that at, at auctions a lot. You see family photos and oh. letters, like all this really personal stuff that you think, oh my God, like why is this out here for the public to just paw through? Um but mm -hmm. a lot of times it's just that that no one's left and and I think that that was the case here and um it was something that was going to be thrown away and I I just liked it. Why uh, did you like it? I well I I like a lot of stuff like that, and especially then, much less so now. Um, but then I was collecting 
a lot of things. I was making visual art then. Um, so I just had a lot of stuff around that I would make sculptures from or like assemblages and collages and things like that. And I so, so you're, a, you're a visual artist in addition to literary. Yeah, I haven't been making as much visual work lately um, in the last I don't know, several years, but but I like I liked it as a a visual object first, like a physical object, and I tried to figure out how to make visual art out of it. Like I was gonna I was gonna remove the pages, maybe I thought, and and frame them in groups, or I was going to, like, make blown-up prints of the pages. They're really interesting to look at, like, just visually. Um, what is what is the, yeah, give us, a like, a visual of this diary. What is it like to hold it in your hand? What is the cover like, the pages, the ink, just so people can start to see it? Yeah, it's, well, so it's a small, it's a pretty small book, um, kind of similar in size, actually, to what the my book is, um, but it's much thicker. And it has a leather cover with like a gold embossed. It was from the 60s, so it's got this kind of 60s looking gold embossed five-year diary on the cover, and it has a lock on the front, and it used to have a strap that locked it, but the strap is like rotted and it's gone. It's not there anymore, but the key was still inside the diary when I found it. Um, The spine is totally gone, like broken, so the pages are just sort of like some of them are loose and then some of them are just in a chunk. Um, and then the covers kind of like come apart separately. So I've always kept it folded in this like paper bag, um, in my desk and when I handle it and stuff and it, it's mildewed. It got, uh, it looks like it either got leaked on or dropped in water at some point. So the bottom Probably like quarter or so of each page is has bled, and she used a lot of blue ink, so it's really pretty. Like, I mean, you can't really read a lot of the words in the later years. Um, I was going to say, is it illegible because of a that? lot of it? Yeah, a lot of the 1971 and 1972 is is not super readable. And so, the and the years that it covers are 68 through 68 through 72. And 72 and. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get this diary. It's some, you can't even remember how it, exactly it came into your mm-hmm. hands, but you know that it struck you. Mm-hmm. But you didn't immediately, and you didn't immediately know a that you were going to do something with it, artistic, correct? Well, I knew I was going to. I mean, I really wanted to do something with it from the beginning. From um, just reading through it one time. I didn't even read it in the beginning. I just, I just looked at it. I just would take it out sometimes and sort of look at it and try to figure out what to do with it. And I, and I was thinking of doing something more. It seemed more like it would make sense to try to do something visual with it because I liked how it looked and I didn't try to read it. I don't know why. And then at some point, for some reason, I, I just started to read it. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to do something textual with it. And I felt that like that same freedom that I had felt to use it as a found object like in a collage sort of sense, I felt carried over into the idea of using it uh, textually. So I felt free to use the words like you would use like a found newspaper clipping or magazine ad or something in a collage. It almost feels like a poem to me. I mean, that was what I was hoping for. Oh, okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) You know, and so there are a couple of things that strike me 
um, you know, one is just the, the idiosyncratic language of this woman, mm-hmm. her phrasing, um, and it, she's in downstate Illinois. That's another thing. We place this geographically. I, I saw normal. She's right. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Normal is in there. Um, the name of the town is Knoxville, Illinois, and it's right next to Galesburg, um, which is where Carl Sandburg was born. And okay. it, so it's kind of, it's Western Illinois, kind of like North, a little bit Northwestern. Oh, okay. Yeah. But country. Um, it's small town. It's, I actually visited the town recently. Um, it's kind of this great, I don't know. It's a, it's a pretty interesting place. It's kind of this great small town America feel that it has, but, um, you know, I imagine it was a little more vibrant when she was living there, but maybe not. I don't know. Did you, and like, because this diary wound up in your hands, like you said, there's not, not anybody left to, to tend to it. Mm-hmm. So are there, were you there just to check it out and like feed your curiosity or were you there to like meet family members <laughs> or like, was there any kind of like geneal, you know, genealogical work that you could do there or at least see where this woman lived or anything like that? Well, yes. Um, so last summer before the book was going to go into production, the publisher asked if I could try to find it out if there were any surviving relatives. Um, they thought it would be prudent to, you know, try to find them and let them know that this book was coming out. And, you know, because there are other names other than, well, I, her name isn't, isn't mentioned in the book, but like there are other names of people and I didn't change any of those names. I thought about changing them, but they just seemed so great and Vern? really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really important to Bayard. I love Bayard's name. Um, they just seemed really important to the to the text. So I didn't change them. Um, so anyway, the publisher asked if I could see if there was anyone left. And I, I had tried like early on to search the internet to see if I could find anything about her. I was assuming I wouldn't find anything, maybe like an obituary, I thought, but I never found anything. Um, so I kind of stopped thinking about it and just was working with this thing that felt kind of mysterious and you know, in some ways. And I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know when she died. I didn't necessarily know who these people were that she was mentioning, like her relationship to them or anything like that. Can we say her name? Yeah. Her name's, her name was Cora, um, Cora Hudson Lacey. Okay. So when the publisher asked me to do that, I looked again and this time I found a page that had been made for her on this website called findagrave.com. I've seen this before. You have? Yes. It's really interesting. It's just this user-created website that uh, apparently a lot of people have a hobby of going to graveyards, photographing all of the graves, uploading the photos to this website. And so each grave kind of gets its own page created for it, um, and it serves as like a virtual Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so stuff like this, <laughs> like, because I, I think it can be, it's so abstract, uh, the number of human beings on this planet, mm -hmm. like what is the world population now? It's like 7 billion or something. But when somebody starts to talk about a niche interest, like walking into sand, like, like the fact that there is a volume of people who are interested in doing this large enough to populate a website and you can find this woman's great, you know, who's out there photographing tombstones? Apparently there's over a hundred and I think I'm remembering this number correctly, 175 million individual graves that have been uploaded to oh this God. website. Well, I mean, I guess it's great for research. <laughs> it is. And it becomes, it, I mean, it's not like the website isn't ostensibly like a genealogy website like Ancestry.com is, but it's sort of become one because, uh, like, for example, with Cora, I found this page that had been created for her. And so there was a photo of her gravestone the year. She, so I found out when she died, which, which was, was like four or five years after the diary ends. At what age? She was um, 95 or 96. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, because yeah. the voice that she's writing in, like I was picturing someone up in age. She was 86 when she started writing the diary. She had a long life. She did. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, it was really, it was really kind of crazy to find that page because then I saw all these things about her that, you know, I, I would never have known just from reading her diary. Um, like I saw that her first husband, she married him when she was 21. They had a daughter together when she was 22 and he died when she was 23 and then she married again 10 years later or so, and, and he also died fairly quickly after that. So it just, you know, it was, it was really strange to see all of this information. And then there were all these links to all the other, to all of her relatives, many of whom are mentioned in the diary and all of their gravestones and the years they died. And yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> The other day, not like, not even a month ago, I was walking through a cemetery with my dog because <laughs> it's, I don't know, it's a nice place to walk a dog. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, was near the exit. I actually couldn't get out. It was annoying, but I was like at this door and I thought it was going to open, but then it was like, you needed a code. And I was like, this is, you know, frustrating, but I happened to glance down and there was a notebook. And, you know, in longhand, somebody had been writing in it and I picked it up and it was a diary, hmm. but it was like somebody who was really, it was kind of like written in the voice of an angry person. It happened to be a young woman who was like, people are backstabbing me and 
this bullshit, mm-hmm. fuck this person. You know what I'm saying? It was like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. for like pages and pages and pages. And it was really densely populated. Mm-hmm. So big block paragraphs. And I thought, wow, this is fascinating. Like I found something. And then I started reading it. And I was like, I'm exhausted on page two. Mm-hmm. Like I was done. Mm-hmm. So I think that it sounds nice to find a diary that's old or someone has discarded and it's going to inevitably be this fascinating thing. But it, I guess my point is that it's not a guarantee. It is definitely not a guarantee. And I kind of hate diaries, honestly. I've never been able to keep one myself. And I, you know, since I have been working with this diary, my parents have sent me other things that they find, like other diaries and other, like I've got some journals that are sort of like, um, how much people paid for groceries and supplies and stuff, but then they'll also sort of write in there like it's a, a diary a little bit and and letters and things like that. And and they actually, they just sent me a set of three diaries that they found. It, it's really strange. They were kept by a woman around the same area in Illinois, and except that she kept these diaries for like, I mean, I think there was maybe like 30 years worth of her writing in these diaries. And she did it really faithfully, you know, like she filled out every day. Maybe she was um, Mormon. I don't think she was Mormon. I think she was a farmer's wife, um, a homemaker. But I started to read it, to try to read her diaries, and I just, I didn't really care about it. And and some of the other journal-type things that I've come across, it, it, it really seems like a lot of the time people are trying to they're trying to write something that they think maybe someone will find and and think well of them or right. like impress whoever i mean it's such a weird right it's a weird thing to do you know like it's who, hard to be a good diarist who are you writing it for like are you writing it for yourself are you writing it to someone who might find it after you're gone like you know yeah, it's hard to be. <laughs> Listen, I've kept journals uh, on and off my whole like adult life. Mm-hmm. I've thrown away almost all of them because mm-hmm. I'm so horrified when I reread them. I'm mm-hmm. like, this is awful. Mm-hmm. I don't like myself. Yeah, you know, or it's just like I'm just complaining, or it's just stupid. Yeah. You know, but like some people can like ruminate and capture, or they have this like unselfconscious, like you're talking about delivery, um, that. When you read it, you know, there's a, I think there's just an energy in it that, uh, vibrates differently than somebody who's trying to make people think well of them. Yeah. You know? And I wonder, you know, with Cora's diary, I feel like a lot of it might have to do with her age when she started writing it and that, you know, and I think her observations tend to be fairly practical. Um, and it, I just feel like it allows for a lot of surprise and delight, you know, at just kind of daily, dailiness. There's something, yeah. I mean, there's like, I think it's like a higher level of, um, or a higher tendency among people who say are in their eighties or, or up in age to have less affect, maybe just more like plain spoken honesty. Mm -hmm. I think of my grandmother, like my paternal grandmother, she always had that. Mm-hmm. Like when I was with her, there was like this sense of relief because you knew, like no matter what you were talking about, like she was not going to bullshit you. Mm-hmm. She was done bullshitting. Mm-hmm. She'd yeah. been through too much. She was just, she was real. And I was like eight and I loved it. You know, <laughs> uh, she, 
<laughs> like crying, but like not, not like a lot, but you know, she was just real yeah. uh, in some way. And the way that I think a lot of adults in my life at that age, not, you know, weren't necessarily yeah, because they were like curating too much. Um, so she definitely does that. And then the other thing I want to ask you, because, you know, you are collaging, you're extracting certain lines and you're assembling what amounts to a poem your book for people listening, it reads very quickly. You mm-hmm. can read it in a sitting yeah. in under, under 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works with a lot of white space, obviously, which mm-hmm. is part of what makes it compelling because you just get these tiny bits and pieces from Cora. Does the actual diary work like that? It's obviously denser, but does she leave a lot of white space? Are there big gaps or is she working in big blocks and you're just pulling out what you think is most catching? There is like zero white space in her diary to the extent that she even, I mean, she filled in all the margins surrounding the daily entries and she filled in all of the pages in the back, which are, which were supposed to be like for addresses and birthdays and things like that. And she just kind of kept writing and she also wrote on a bunch of scraps of paper and kind of stuffed those into it's a really large overwhelming document and so what did like is there any methodology that you used to f- to figure out what you wanted to extract like i guess you're trying to tell a story or is it just the stuff that caught you and you just used your intuition yeah kind of that um i just when i started reading it you know, I started noticing certain sentences that I just liked. And for some reason, I just started typing them. So I started keeping this Word document of of all the sentences that I liked. And even that document ended up being pretty long um, and very different from what the book finally ended up being. Um, I cut a lot of that out so- and, and edited it and changed some things and and then arranged it and then... Like I did multiple arrangements before, before coming to the one that is in the book. So, uh, let's give people some of the sentences just so they can get a flavor of her, uh, language. Okay. Everything loose is moving. Is traveling. That... Everything loose is traveling. That's right. <laughs> so, and she's talking about the wind. Uh-huh. Um, but do you, do you have them like, do you have them locked up away upstairs or do you need like the book? (laughs) I don't want to put you on the spot, but she just, she has like this very, uh, idiosyncratic personal way of talking that evokes place for me. Like, you know, when you read it and you're sort of hearing her talk in her own voice, I'm thinking of somebody out in the Midwest and. Yeah. Well, I really think that a big part of my interest in the diary was that it, it is, it feels like, um. It feels like a textbook for for like a Midwestern vernacular to me, yeah. which is where I grew up. And so it feels like deeply familiar in that way. Well, it's interesting that you connected so strongly with this woman. Yeah. I mean, it might be a little weird even. <laughs> right. Well, but I mean, it, you know, I don't know. Like, Is it because it, it, it has to do with place? you obviously have some feeling of personal rapport with her. Like she's painting. Mm -hmm. So like there are certain aspects of her, um, life and daily life. Like, I love this picture of this woman living kind of like in this prairie town or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with the elements. Like the weather's a big thing Mm -hmm. as it would be when Mm -hmm. you're living out there. It's like wind, lightning, fire. And then, um, because of the end of her life, 
uh, you know, the last decade of her life that she's in when she's writing this, there's, you know, you get to that stage of life. A lot of what you're hearing is like, so-and-so had a stroke, someone mm -hmm. died, yeah. funeral today. Like that's, that's the end of life. Yeah. And, uh, so I don't know, there's a lot to love, I guess. And I can see, I, I can see, I suppose how, um, a writerly person, maybe particularly a, a young woman from the Midwest would read this diary and feel a sense of connection because she clearly had like some creative thing going on. And mm -hmm. does that make any, am I reading it right? Yeah, definitely. I think, and I think that I just, I've always been drawn to older people, I think. And, um, and just the way that, you know, this, this diary as an object came to me, um, I was really interested in, in, I mean, I still am, but I, I live here now and it's not as, as in the front of my mind as it used to be, but just this world of, of the Midwest, um, from kind of like when I was growing up and these older people and, um, you know, sort of like my grandparents' generation or my great grandparents' generation and all of that stuff is pretty compelling to me, um, as material or as like inspiration for, for this and also for the fiction that I've been trying to write. Okay. So you, let's talk about you. You grew up in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Your parents are antique dealers. Mm -hmm. Uh, when, what town in Iowa? It's called LeClaire. It's on the Mississippi river, right on the border with Illinois. Um, birthplace of Buffalo Bill Cody. Oh, <laughs> look at that. Claire, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, how many people live there? Mm, like two or 3000. Okay. So small town. Yeah. But it's, it's sort of part of this region called the quad cities, which is like Davenport and rock Island. Um, so we lived on like the outside. We didn't live in town. We had an acreage, uh, kind of like on a bluff by the river and like wooded acreage and but it was also very close to it was very kind of suburban but also there were just there were farmers fields right behind our house so so it's not I feel like when you say Iowa a lot of people tend to think just flat cornfields but the region that I grew up in is very hilly and has the river and has a lot of woods and rock bluffs and things like that and it um all of the river towns I feel like are really interesting I, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, of, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, used to be happening. There's a lot of history, Oh yeah. you mm -hmm. know? And I think, um, God, I, what did I read? I read like a book called Methland. Is it old wine, Iowa? Am I remembering that right? I don't even know if that if, old wine's a town. Yeah. Old wine's a town. But it, like the, the reason I bring it up is not because of meth necessarily, but because of its heyday as a, uh, stopover in between Chicago and St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So it used to be like a cultural hub because all these jazz musicians back in the day would be traveling from Chicago to oh, St. Louis. Cool. And that was like the, the mid, the midpoint. So they'd stop over, play a concert and it was like a factory town. So they uh -huh. had like a population. People would get to see like the best musicians, you uh -huh. know, they'd roll through old one on yeah. the railroad or whatever. So, you know, it, like nowadays you drive through and there's a lot of blight and, you know, mm -hmm. things have obviously changed radically, but I mean, Mississippi River Towns, that used to be, used to be it. A lot of money. Yeah. There's a lot of really beautiful old buildings. Yeah. 
So it was a, was it like an idyllic, like Nate, it sounds like you had like a beautiful, like trees and acreage and a river and it sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, it is nice. It's also not nice. In I'm a, from Indiana. In other you, ways. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to sell me on not nice. <laughs> I know those winters. Um, and then you like antiques. So were you surrounded by, uh, you must be surrounded by antiques growing up in your house. Actually, no. Um, my parents started doing the antique thing when I was a teenager. Mm. Um, before that, my dad had been a professional poker player and my mother had her own, she had a couple of her own businesses that she started that were, she had like a store that sold home, home goods and, and then she had her own business, uh, making floral arrangements. Wow. Your dad was a professional poker player. Yeah. <laughs> like successful to some extent, right? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, that's all he did Damn. from the time he was a teenager and until he was in his late forties. I have a friend who got into that for a while. Like when you could play online poker for that, like window of time mm -hmm. before things got regulated. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Hollywood bowl for a concert and saw him and he was like, just back from Vegas and was like a glow. He'd been at some tournament and he's like, I want $150,000. <laughs> and like, this was when I was like in my late twenties or something. I was like, what? You know, like, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was doing that for a while. Like, that's not like, I'm not, I'm not a good card player. I don't even know how to play poker. I don't know how to play games. Like I can't play Monopoly. I'm like, I don't want to do any of this. Like, there's too many rules. <laughs> I can play blackjack. Uh, if I go to Vegas, like I know how to do that. But, um, like I have another buddy. It's like, you know, he plays avidly and I guess like it's a game of skill. It's not like completely a game of chance. Like, you know, like blackjack tends to be, yeah. uh, so you can, if you know what you're doing, you can cultivate an advantage. Mm -hmm, definitely. But at some point, does this, does this snake bite you? You know, like does at some point you got to lose, right? I feel like the house always wins. Like, is it did not it get... with poker? Cause no. you're playing other players. You're not playing the house. Okay. So it's always a psychology game with the other players. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I imagine that must've, did any of that rub off on you? You think poker playing? strategy. I'm, I'm sure it did. <laughs> For those of you listening, Catherine has an incredible poker face. I have no idea what she's thinking right now. She's very Sphinx like hard to read. Um, so, okay. So back to you, you're growing up, um, uh, in LeClaire, Iowa, near the border of Illinois, not far, not terribly far from this town. That, uh, Coral less than an hour, less than an hour. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and like, what kind of kid were you like, outside a lot reading books all the time i didn't actually read i feel like as much as i've i've heard other writers talk about reading when they were little i definitely read and and loved reading and i started writing stories when i was like four or five and um but i didn't i wasn't like that kind of precocious kid that was reading like crime and punishment when i was 10 or something <laughs> yeah me neither <laughs> <laughs> i spent a lot of time outside i had a horse um and I had a lot of pets and, and yeah, and we had these wonderful woods that were surrounding our house. So I spent most of my time doing that okay, stuff, so I would say. Do you have any siblings? I have a younger brother. Okay. And so how many acres are we talking? Not, I mean, not many. It, it wasn't large. It was like maybe four or five. But still like living in Los Angeles, four or five acres oh, yeah. <laughs> feels like a lot to me. Right. No, it was beautiful. It's beautiful. My parents still live there. It's beautiful. So you could just like jump on a horse and just go ride around on your property. Yeah. It was a little weird though, because of the way our place was 
it was all ravine kind of. So there wasn't really like we had a pasture for him that was pretty that was smaller. And then I, I when I would ride him, I would have to kind of like cut through our neighbor's yard and then onto this back little road that that I would just go down and come back. And um, there wasn't a lot of area to like stretch out on. And I I started uh, doing 4-H after I got him and would do like the like the summer shows, like the barrel racing and pole bending and stuff like that. Wait, what does that even mean? It's like a timed event where you, there's, for barrel racing, there's three barrels, like oil barrels that are set up in a cloverleaf pattern and you... You try to go around them as fast as you can, like you. Circle. Oh right, right. Yeah, like that. Um, so I would keep him out at this. This we had this. Uh, my mom had this older, this old man that was her friend, and he had this beautiful property near us. And so I would stay out. I would keep my horse out there for the summer when I was doing the fair and and practice out there. And I would ride at his place, which was wonderful. Wow. So like, how old are you? when this is like 10, you're 10 years old, you got a yeah. horse, you can just jump on the horse and go ride around. Yeah. That's sort of like old, it's like sold like old Americana. Yeah. Kind of, like apple pie childhood kind of thing. <laughs> you don't hear that very often. No, it's pre- it was pretty, yeah. I did like very shaping. I feel like of me. <laughs> you still love animals and stuff. Like mm-hmm. you have, do you have pets now? I had a dog. Um, she recently died. Oh. Um, she was 15 and a half. Well, that's a good run, though. Mm-hmm. What kind of dog? A pug. Oh. I had a French bulldog mm. named Walter who choked on a bagel and died. Oh, no. When he was nine. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was the worst. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So 15 and a half for a pug. That's actually like way beyond what a pug is supposed to make it to, right? It is. Yeah. It is. I was hoping she'd make it longer, but... Well, they always is. go too soon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but I, I'm thinking like horse... Like, like rural farmland, open pastures, bluffs, river. Like I'm, I'm not picturing pug. Pug is, <laughs> pug is like after you moved to the city, right? You got out of uh, like Leclaire and moved out. Yeah, I got her at this really weird time that was just a terrible time to get. I don't know, I don't know how that happened really. But when I was just finishing undergrad, when I was living in Iowa City, is when I got her. My mom had Pekingese. Oh, she did. Yeah. Okay. So I think that it probably came from that. I just, for some reason, I always liked pugs. I don't even know where I got that from. Like, I we didn't know anybody who had a pug. I, they weren't very popular then, you know? You didn't see them on TV or anything like that. So They weren't I, fashionable. No. And it's same same thing with, like, um, I guess when I was a kid, I had a, I had this blanket habit. Like, I had this blanket that I had to carry around with me everywhere and... Um, By the way, for those of you listening, Catherine is holding a blanket right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little weird, but. And my before I started preschool, my mom wanted to get me to stop carrying it, and so she told me if I would stop, that I could have whatever I wanted. And apparently, I said I like handed her the blanket and was like, "I want a white female Persian cat," which I have no idea where I got that either. Like, I don't Persians like, I don't know. Yeah. But similar smushed face, you know? Do you have any, like, spiritual stuff going on? Like, do you believe... And the reason I ask is just, like, you find this diary, you you have this, like, very powerful connection with this woman who's long since passed. You're pulling up, like, Persian cat and pug <laughs> out of nowhere. 
Like when you make sense, and we all have this stuff, you know, we all have some, you know, these weird like predilections and things we can't quite explain or whatever. But do you have any kind of um, way of explaining it to yourself that would fall under like spiritual terminology? Uh, I do, but not in a way that I'm, I would maybe know how to like articulate, but it, it does feel that way to me or like, um, just writing in general and, and the things that I've been drawn to in my life, it does feel like it is something that is coming from somewhere else, but I don't know, maybe everyone feels like that. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I guess everybody's people tend to have a different vocabulary a lot of the time. Yeah. Did you get, were you raised with like in the Midwest? Did you have like a traditional religious upbringing? No, not at all. Um, my mom's mom was religious and they had to go to church all the time and sing in the choir and stuff like that. And, uh, my mom didn't want us to have to do that. So we didn't do any of that. I maybe went with my grandma a couple times. Um, my dad's family was Catholic, but he, you know, is not practicing and they aren't really either. Um, but yeah, my, but my mom and her sisters were really all into new age stuff, like oh. in the eighties. So I grew up with that. Like, what I is guess that, what that's does that kind mean? of like a religion. Um, they just, you know, it was like around that time when a lot of those things were people were just sort of it was kind of like breaking into the mainstream a little bit more you know like i remember my mom had like the I Ching and she had that book chop wood carry water and she written you know the aquarian conspiracy like all of those kind of books and um we went to apparently like me and my cousins and my aunts all we happened upon this thing called the harmonic convergence in fairfield iowa which is oh, where yeah. the Maharishi University is. Yeah, yeah, one of my past guests grew up there, Claire Hoffman. Oh. She's a buddy of mine, but she, uh, yeah, she was, her mom was deep into the TM community and she was raised in Fairfield. Yeah, I think I've I've either read an interview with her or I've listened to part of her book or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I forget. Like, I have it, what is it called? It's like uh, Welcome to Utopia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, something like that. Yeah. Readings from Utopia yeah. Park. I see it on my shelf, yeah. So, but you went there for how much, like for some sort of like gathering? Yeah, they had this, the, it was supposed to be this, um, event where, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. So I probably just shouldn't say it, but it was at some point they were going to, they were trying to like get enough people together to meditate, to like bring the Berlin wall down or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you were part of that. Apparently. Congra I mean, I, congratulations. I don't remember it, but... <laughs> You were the tipping point, Catherine. <laughs> You're welcome, Germany. Um, okay, so that's interesting because I feel like that kind of cuts against maybe people's, my, myself included, expectations of what like a small town in Iowa um, upbringing might be like. Uh, was the town itself and the people you were surrounded with uh, generally like different and like more religious and traditional and you guys were sort of an outlier or was it more complicated than that? I would not describe that region as particularly religious in, in my view. I mean, I'm sure there are people who would disagree with me, but, um, it doesn't feel like a, it doesn't feel like a Jesus-y kind of zone. Um, it's got a, it's kind of a weird mix of sort of a, you know, 
industrial, like there's a lot of industrial stuff around there. There's sort of like a blue collar industrial, like the Alcoa aluminum factory is there. And like in this, on this huge stretch of low lying land, um, that used to all be onion fields. It used to be Pleasant Valley, which is right next to where I grew up and where I went to high school. Um, I think it used to be like the biggest onion producer in the country, just all onion fields. And the last of them were were there when I was a teenager and they're all gone now. It's all just like storage facilities and weird, other weird industrial things. And then, but then like kind of alongside that is a lot of these kind of gross cookie cutter suburban developments where, and they're putting them on what used to be cornfields. Um, so there's no trees at all. And that's what remind, that reminds me of the neighborhood I grew up in, 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 uh, Indiana. Uh-huh. It was like right next to a pig farm. Uh-huh. It's been built out since I left, but it was like that. I didn't actually put that together at the time. Cause we moved there and I was like, why are there no trees in this neighborhood? Mm-hmm. It's just wide open, barren mm-hmm. cornfields. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird area. It's interesting. I, I liked I liked growing up there, I would say. Well, it seems like it still occupies a, a healthy percentage of your imagination. Yeah. You know? It does. I think that there's something about, I don't know, I've talked about this with my husband, and he, he, like, he really prefers to be in a place like Los Angeles and, and finds it inspiring to be in, like, a large city where there's a lot going on. And I think that I've always been weirdly more inspired by kind of boring places and, you know, probably having to do with where I grew up. Not to say that it's a boring place, but just when there's less happening there, I think there's more room to think about what might happen. It's like more white space. Mm -hmm. I get that. The thing is I've lived here so long. I don't know. Like, it's like, I think I'm here and I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to taste what it's like to live in a small town again or smaller town. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I see the logic in both. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I get how being in some place which is like super kinetic and like really culturally rich can be inspiring. And I can also see how that can be like, almost like, a, like self canceling or something. Like mm-hmm. there's so much going on that it just becomes like this wash and mm-hmm. it's easier to feel inspired and creative when you're in a place that's more still and calm and open. Mm-hmm. I get that too. Mm-hmm. So Maybe or even, point. or even just boring, you know, like not interesting. <laughs> yeah, just like manifestly boring as fuck. Um, so, uh, how long have you been out here then? Have you been in LA a while or? Nine years. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. a while. I mean, I like, you know, I like, I love living here. Uh, I love being in cities, but yeah, I always think about what it would be like to live somewhere else, but I also don't have any reason to go anywhere else. So. You and me both. So we're in the same boat. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you're in high school, uh, happy, like adolescence, like, were you like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Or were you basic, you know, were you pretty much contented and happy childhood? Mm. Uh, not, not super happy, sort of like middle school into high school, but not like not anything terrible and not where I was like, Oh my God, get me out of here. Um, I was very close with my family, still very close with my family. I went to college just like an hour away, 
you know, and still saw them all the time. In Iowa City. Mm -hmm. So Iowa City is an hour from where you were. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a good, that's a good little college town. It's great. Yeah. I, I kind of, I love it there. Were you exposed to the writer's workshop when you were there? Yeah. I, um, they, I guess they have an undergraduate writer's workshop now, but then you had to, if you wanted to study writing, you had to just get an English degree and then basically just take all writing classes. And they had this thing that was, they had a class that was called the undergraduate writer's workshop and you had to like submit a manuscript to get into it and stuff like that. And so I ended up doing that, um, pretty much every semester and being taught like at the die house, uh, by the graduate students that were in the workshop. Oh, so that's how that works. So the, the grad yeah. students who are in the MFA program mm -hmm. teach the undergraduate, but just the same, but the same model, you know, like, so it's just like a junior <laughs> junior workshop sort of but still like and like, do a lot of people that go to the junior workshop feed into i mean it's so competitive i guess it just depends but. yeah i don't know how, you know i don't know how many it seemed when i was living there it seemed like most of the graduate students were coming from elsewhere there were a lot of people coming from new york um and from overseas even and yeah i took a class too like i took a summer class with Frank Conroy, that was right before he stepped down as the director. Um, Who were some of your teachers like for, that were in the MFA program? Um, I worked with Brett Johnston. I mean, I want to know, I think I'm saying that. <laughs> I think I'm saying that right. Brett Johnson or Brett Johnston. Um, I haven't read any of his books, but I know that he has some books out. And... Um, Elizabeth Stuckey French was a teacher of mine when I was in middle school. I did this program at the workshop there. And so you were going to writer's workshops when you were in middle school. There was this special program, like when I was, uh, 12 or 13, that was a summer program at the writer's workshop that again, like, you, you know, you had to apply for it or whatever. And I went to that and it was in the summer and that was, that was really amazing. It was really, really influential i bet well i mean but it also uh indicates that you were like demonstrating real interest in this at a young age i mean yeah. you say you weren't reading crime and punishment but you were going to the iowa writers workshop when you were 12 <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty good it's more than i was doing and i was like don't know what i was doing at age 12 i was like riding my bike and off a ramp or something but uh yeah i wrote a lot of stuff when i was young and there was this like there was this um uh, written and illustrated by a contest that I would try to enter every year. Like where you, and this was before, I mean, my projects were, I would, I should probably go back and try to see if I can find them at my parents' house, but I would like physically assemble this book, uh, out of like cardboard and stuff and, um, try to bind it myself and everything as a 10 year old or something and, and write these stories and, and make illustrations for them. Um, so yeah, I had been doing that kind of thing for Pretty much kind of from the beginning, I guess. My daughter's like that. Really? She Yeah, she's always writing books. <laughs> and like, some of them are long. And she'll be like, here, read it. And then she'll like stand there and like want to watch me read it. And I'm like, this is like six, you know, this is like 7,000 words. I'm going to need some time, you know. It's, it's cute. She's very, yeah. you know, very into it. I mean, I always encourage her, but I'm not like making her do this. It's just weird to watch, mm -hmm. you know. Um, do you have any writerly people in your family? Like, is that... Can you trace like in, you know, a creative impulse? I mean, it sounds like both of your parents have some aesthetic sense and creative stuff happening, but, um, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, even, yeah, I mean, my mom, the things that she did were always um, visually creative, the businesses that she had and stuff. And she always had a real flair for like interior design and stuff like that. Um, but I would say, yeah, both of my parents are pretty artistic people, even though they're not, you know, necessarily making art in the way that you might assume someone would make art. Um, but yeah, other than that, there's no, yeah, there are no, I hope I'm not forgetting anybody, but Maybe there might feel, be a diary, of, awful, a diary yeah. of one of your ancestors is going to turn up and yeah. no artists or, or writers in my family that I know of or can think of at this moment. Okay. And you seem like the, the, the vibe you give off is somebody who's like totally self-possessed. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's any kind of like period of your life where you went like really wild or like <laughs> you didn't have any of that. You've always been in control. Unlike some of us. Uh, to a fault, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe there's still time. Maybe you can go <laughs> berserk at midlife. Keep a diary. <laughs> uh, but you didn't like in college. Like there was none of like the... Uh, I mean, I would say a little bit, but probably most people would say, oh, no. Yeah. You know? No. You did not get wild. <laughs> what did you do with your horse when you went to college? You didn't take um, it with you? No, we, we gave him to my cousins, um, who are a little bit younger than I am because he was a, he was like a small horse or like a large pony. So I could still ride him as an adult sized person, but he was really better for kind of like a 12 year old girl, you know, 10 year, bring him out to LA. 10 year old girl. He's, he's deceased, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Yeah. He died a few years ago. I wish that I had gotten to see him again before he died. But he went to my cousins, and they are very sweet people, and they enjoyed him for many years. And then they, when they got older and left home, they passed him on to this family that they knew um, of farmers in Minnesota, and they had a bunch of kids. And he uh, he lived out the rest of his life there with oh. them. He was kind of a... He was a really great horse because he was kind of a babysitter horse, which is like you could put a a little kid on him, and if the if he started walking and the kid started sliding off, he would stop until the kid got their balance back again. Aww. But he was also really fun for someone like me who was a better rider. Like he was fast, and you know he wasn't like a plodding kind of broken pony. He like, could gallop. He was pretty spirited and pretty. Um, he was a lot of fun. Wow. He, I, he galloped, yeah, for you sure. You could do that? You could just like open it up and take him out on a full gallop? Oh, yeah. Okay. And my mom made me learn how to ride without a saddle, which was, which is like the best way to learn how to ride because then you're not relying on that for your balance. You learn how to, to stay on. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> what other things can you do? I feel like there's things I don't even know. Like you can uh, like churn butter and like, I don't even know, like make... Uh, Make your own like horseshoes or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I, I hope that that doesn't sound wrong tonally. I just mean to say that like that experience, I feel like is it's just so it's like increasingly uncommon, mm -hmm. you know, for people because all these places, like you say, it's like these kind of like uh, totally without character neighborhoods of houses that are all all look the same, were built as cheaply and quickly as possible. Like even in you know, small town America. 
I feel like uh, I feel really fortunate for the life I've had because I think that um, it just feels like it's very it's been very rich for writing. Um, there's a lot of weird people, you know, I've been exposed to like and the different things that my parents have done and, you know, the fact that they neither of them ever had like just sort of these nine to five job office jobs or whatever and and the uniqueness of the place that they chose to raise us and yeah all of it i feel really lucky and um i know you're not you're never supposed to ask a lady her age but like it sounds like you grew up like pre-digital a little bit at least and maybe because of the place that you grew up it wasn't as big of a thing even if it was maybe entering the culture yeah i kind of came to the internet when i was in my late like late high school okay. and found eBay and was so excited about eBay and was selling vintage clothes on eBay like right away. Oh, <laughs> like really? 1997. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Cause like, that's the thing I feel grateful for. eBay? Uh, well, no, no, but pre, uh, pre digital, like having some experience of an analog planet. Yes. Cause it's gone. Yeah. And to have only experience of what it's like to live with all of this technology all the time, which has its positives. I don't want to bash technology like outright, but man, it's different. And oh, yeah. to be tethered to a screen constantly and to know only that as a mode of living. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, and this sort of circles back to what you were talking about regarding geography, is that it's a lot harder to be bored mm-hmm. in the way that is probably most conducive to creativity. Yeah. I think boredom is really essential to yeah. creativity. But when you have a phone, it's like, you're never really bored. You yeah. always just be like, I'm going to play a game or I'm going to text a friend or I'm going to go on Twitter or, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I speak from experience. It's not the same. Like when I was a kid, you just sat there, <laughs> <laughs> you made up a game. Like, mm-hmm. what did you do? You went outside, mm-hmm. you know, you called your friend, the line was busy. You were like, Oh, you know, and then they got call waiting and it was like a big deal, you know? And, <laughs> But I just, uh, I don't know, I guess having to do some of that work to find ways to entertain myself, I, I feel like lucky for that in some weird way. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Or maybe I'm just like feeling nostalgia for a time that wasn't all that great. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know what it's like to, to grow up with that from the beginning. So maybe it's great and maybe the people who have had that experience wouldn't want it any other way. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm really, I'm grateful for that time for sure. I mean, I'm also a person who can fetishize the 19th century. Like, <laughs> yeah. I wanna, oh, same here. I want to I mean... go, yeah. I just want to go live in like the frontier or I want to go live with, uh, the transcendentalists and, and it's like the life expectancy was 50 and like everybody had scurvy or whatever. And yeah. it's not nearly, there's no outdoor, pl- no indoor plumbing, you know? So not that that's the worst thing in the world, but in the winter, I don't know. Yeah. People had like fleas and shit. It was bad. Yes. Uh, I'm very thankful for indoor plumbing. Right. Yeah. Like showers. That's yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So a connected thought and something I want to make sure to say before you go is uh, that this physical diary of Cora's that you have excavated for your book is the kind of artifact that is, uh, increasingly rare. Like a lot of people journal, but most of us are digitizing our Mm -hmm. personal lives 
And what we will leave behind will not be a physical object. Right. It will be like, here's my Dropbox. Have fun. You know, with like my six million selfies, which that's something. And I'm sure they're going to be of interest to somebody like you somewhere down the line mm -hmm. who somehow gets a hold of it. But I don't know how that serendipity works with a digital archive unless somebody specifically, you know, maybe there, there will be auctions for these things at some point. Mm -hmm. um, but do, have you thought about that? Just the fact that it's a, a physical thing and that it's more and more rare. Yeah. And just that, like, what what's going to happen, I guess, too, like, what's going to happen with all this digital stuff? Like, I guess it it lives on for a while, but at some point it's just phase out. Like, I don't know what's going to happen to all that people pour into the Internet. Yeah. I mean, people are already, I think, you know, making art about it and um, being interested in it and inspired in it by it in a way that that's probably similar to to people who are drawn to physical objects you know um but i've just always been more drawn to the physical and uh yeah i mean it is it is it's interesting to think about i don't know what what that's gonna look like and i like i was thinking about how like what would he what would it even be like to look at this diary that i have like after I die, assuming that we still have a planet then. Um, right. <laughs> Big assumption. <laughs> like, is it going to just seem like this crazy, crazy object or is it not going to be that strange? I don't, I don't really know. When you say the diary that you're keeping, you mean the one that you personally keep? No, no. The diary that this book is made from. Are you a diarist yourself? No, I'm not. You're not? No. Interesting. No. My friend gave me a five-year diary uh, when I moved to Los Angeles and because I would, she knew I was working on this project and I was moving and it seemed like a good time to start one. And I tried, but I failed and I made maybe like 10 entries. And This podcast is my diary. Me. It's a good diary. That's it. I don't know what else I could possibly say. That you know, I don't yeah. need to write it all down. I just babble it into this microphone. I think that's good. Well, we'll see. We'll see if, what my kids think. <laughs> <laughs> um. So what about getting a book like this published? Because what is it? Is it MCD? Mm -hmm. So FSG, it's an imprint of FSG, mm -hmm. is publishing what is a very, is experimental the right word? Pretty strange. Edgy, strange. I mean, it's a, yeah. a strange book. And I'm like, wow, Catherine got this book published by FSG. That's cool. How did you do that? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, like, what did you do? Did you submit it? And they just said, yeah, we want to do it. Or did you know somebody who had read other work of yours who asked you what you were working on? Or like, what's the story? Um, I had a book of short stories that my agent was preparing to send out to editors. And right before she was going to send it out, I kind of came to the final arrangement that I had decided on for this book. So I just sent it to her to see if she was interested in it and she really liked the book. And so she included it in her submission. So she presented this, you know, two book package, like this book and the book of stories to all the editors and Emily Bell at FSG responded like right away and, and wanted to publish them both. And I honestly am still kind of in shock about it. Wow. Well, that's good though. I like the, I like hearing stories like that because it makes me hopeful. There are people out there who will take a chance on books that don't necessarily conform to some kind of like preconceived notion or 
Yeah. You know, market standard or something. I don't know. But I th- I can see how having it paired with a collection, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that is more traditional, at least in terms of its um, contents, would make some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but kudos to Emily. Yeah. I'm very... And kud- kudos to your agent. Who is she? Her name's Harriet Moore. Um, she works at David Hyam in London. Okay. And she's wonderful. How did you wind up with that? With an agent in London? Um, so I think it was 2017. I heard of this new journal that was being started in England called Egress. And uh, it was being edited by Andrew Latimer and David Winters. And I knew that they were interested in some of the writers that, and some of the writing that I was interested in. So I sent them a few stories of mine to see if they would want to publish them in the magazine. And they did. And they also asked if I had a manuscript. Um, so I sent them the manuscript and Andrew was running um, Little Island Press. And so he wanted to publish the book of stories. And, but before we kind of like finalized that deal or whatever, um, he put one of my stories up on their website and that's where Harriet saw it. And then she got in touch with me. The rest is history. Yeah. And now actually in a strange turn of events, Little Island is no longer going to be publishing the books. Um, so that's kind of up in the air right now about the... For like UK? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to meet you. Oh, so nice to meet you. I enjoyed your book. Congratulations on uh, its publication. Good luck with the story collection. When is that due out? Next April. Okay. So back-to-back springs. Yeah. It's a good way to do it. Yeah. I like it. All right. Well, uh, maybe we'll run into each other around town. Um, if I ever have any, like, um, you know, equine concerns, I will reach out to you. <laughs> or poker or uh, antiquing, I guess, maybe. <laughs> Uh, but such a pleasure. Likewise. Okay, that is Catherine Scanlon. Her book is called Aug Nine Fog. It is available now from MCD Books, an imprint of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find her on Twitter. Her handle is at K underscore Scanlon underscore. Aug Nine Fog is the book. Go get your copy now. It's out there. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, if you want to transcribe some episodes, letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, it's listener-supported, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Next week on the program... Elvia Wilk, I believe. I'm figuring it out still. We'll see. It'll be a surprise. (laughs) 